It's great to have you with us from wherever you're tuning in from. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app. We hope this message inspires and helps you to take your next steps in your journey. Good morning, Elevate Church. Welcome to week four of a series we call and are calling King of Hearts, which, by the way, is a miracle because I tend to lose interest after week three, uh, and it's like, okay, what's next? Uh, But I'm really enjoying teaching this series, and I've been getting real consistent feedback um, from people, which encourages me to know that stuff's landing. And we're teaching about the life and leadership of David, and whilst we're looking at his life from an historical perspective, and we're taking something of a chronological journey through his life, this isn't merely an interesting history lesson. Uh, This is about what things can we learn, the good, the bad, and the ugly, from David's life and leadership that we can take into our spheres Monday through Sunday. So uh, we're gonna keep going with that today. If you missed any of the first three weeks, you can catch them up on our podcast, uh, audio, um, or you can jump onto Facebook and YouTube, catch the video from our online experiences. The big idea and the, and the thing that makes this so compelling and why David's life is so compelling is that God Himself spoke of David as being a man or a person after His own heart, after God's own heart. This actually was the endorsement from the King of Kings about David, And so what can we learn that positions our life to be somebody that God says, there's a person that's clearly after my own heart. And so we're kind of going to go about six weeks, seven weeks. I just don't like to commit too far ahead anymore because I normally find myself wrong. But um, if I was in charge of marketing this series, I'd put up the highlights the titles for every week. I'd probably look at something like this. Uh, come along to the King of Hearts series. We're gonna learn about the heart God favours. Ooh, okay, that's, that's okay. Got my attention now. Yep. Uh, the worshipful heart. Uh-huh. Uh, last week, the courageous heart. All right, yeah. Uh, next week, one of my favourite topics, the loyal heart. And then, and then the blessed heart. And then I'd probably bury in the fine print today's message headline because, come on now, it's not very glamorous. Uh, we'll also be teaching about the humble heart uh, You might want to skip that week. Well, you didn't because that's today. So you're here and I'm going to teach about humility, y'all. Right. (laughs) Two rhetorical questions. Number one, rhetorical question, have you ever prayed for God to open a door? Just answer that in your own brain. Second rhetorical question, have you ever prayed to God to open your heart? Because in my life and in my observation, uh, sometimes God doesn't open a door when we ask Him to because we're not ready to walk through and enter in what's on the other side. He's still preparing us for next. He's still preparing us for more. He's still preparing us for the thing that we need. And He wants to do a bit more open heart surgery. And so these prayers aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but, but they both matter. And so this series is really about the heart, 
how we can prepare our hearts, how we can grow our hearts, how we can be people who can step through the doors that God opens for us. I'm gonna do a callback to a funny tweet that I put up a few months ago. I came across this on the Twitterverse. Uh, this guy um, posted here, let's say, uh, went to text my friend, I'm on my way, and accidentally wrote, I'm in my way. I think I just had a therapy breakthrough. Now, here's the reality, is sometimes we are the barrier to moving into next. And so we you know, have to be not, it's not about, in this case, getting out of our way. It's ensuring that the, the stuff that when God pops the hood and, and looks into our heart, that that we are experiencing and opening our hearts for transformation. And here's the thing, people, you all know this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. One of the biggest barriers to moving forward in our hearts is this thing called pride. Too proud to acknowledge our own mistakes. Too proud to learn from our own mistakes. You know, experience is the best teacher. Some of us have had a heck of a lot of experience on the same thing. Too proud to learn from others because experience can be the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be just your experience. Too focused on ourselves, not enough looking out for others. Or too focused on ourselves, not enough looking up to God. But here's the good news, people. There is an antidote and it's available to everybody. The antidote to pride is the H word, humility. And if and when you and I grow in humility, you will become a better friend, a better parent, a better spouse, a better boss, a better colleague, a better team member, just by growing in this thing called humility. And the reason I did this sort of the marketing thing saying, you know, I'd bury humility in the fine print, hoping no one would notice and everyone would still turn up on that particular Sunday is I think one of the reasons humility can become a dirty word for us is that we misunderstand what's meant when God talks about humility. So let me actually double click on what humility isn't. Let's get that dealt with first. Humility isn't you or I becoming and allowing ourselves to be a pushover, a doormat, somebody else's verbal and or emotional punching bag. <clears throat> Secondly, humility isn't a lack of confidence. Oh, I'm just so humble. Just so humble. I'm not good at anything because I'm humble. No, that's false humility and it's actually very toxic and it doesn't honour God. Or this one, which is a close cousin of that, un, I mean, intentional underperformance. That you don't put yourself forward. You don't speak up in the meeting because you don't want people to, to, to criticise you and think that you think more of yourself than you ought to. And it's like, again, false humility doesn't honour God. Well, here's the thing. With this sort of stuff, if, if, if your concern is that you don't want people to misinterpret your motives, that you're proud and arrogant, um, the heavy lifting to better ensure people don't misinterpret your motives is actually done upstream of you in the meeting. It's actually done upstream of you in the family dynamics. And I'm gonna come back to that, okay? 
what humility is by comparison, and I'm just going to throw two things, and these are also close cousins, strength under control. This is what I would put up as my definition of humility. Strength under control. And it's close cousin, and it's very much coupled with this idea as Jesus followers, that we actually acknowledge that there's a whole lot of power coursing through us. There's a whole lot of power that God sends to us, in us, and through us. And as we use that, as we put that into play and, and miracles happen because we allow God to use His Spirit and His power to work through us, humility keeps us on the right side of the line by acknowledging that the power comes through us but doesn't come from us. And I just wonder before we move on, have you ever, if and when you've thought about humility, have you ever had the words strength and power rise to the surface when you've tried to conceptualize what humility is? I, 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 I go so far to say I think some of us, this is the first time potentially you've had the word strength and power associated with the definition of humility. Last week, uh, we talked about the courageous heart. We took a deep dive into David versus Goliath, one of the most famous battles in history. And uh, spoiler, David won. Um, and so I want to drop us into literally the immediate aftermath of David being victorious over Goliath. This is what's written. When the victorious Israelite army, was, it wasn't the actual Israelite army, it was David, but he was representing the Israelite army as a volunteer, by the way. Um, no workers' compensation benefits had he lost that particular uh, battle. Um, was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all around the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. Huh, okay. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. We'll just stick with the tambourine. I mean, the cymbals here. Uh, this was their song. This, and they're singing this. Saul, I'm not going to sing it. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, next. This made Saul very angry. No kidding. Go Saul, kill them thousands. But, you know, David kills ten thousands. What's this he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Well, <laughs> next they'll be making him their king. And by the way, Saul didn't know that God had already anointed David as a teenager to become the next king. And he just thinks that at some point, there's going to be like a civil war. And people are going to push me off the throne and install David. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, prior to this point, Saul was very affectionate towards David. David had actually come into the court of the king and played worship music to minister to Saul, whose heart had been escalating into a very dark place, described as being filled with anxiety and uh, paranoia. Well, <laughs> this didn't help things in Saul's heart. In fact, things escalated in Saul's heart to a point where he made a decision to actually knock David off, kill him. He didn't put a bounty out there. He, he was going to do it himself. This job was too important to uh, outsource. Well, David got wind of this and he fled the area for his own safety. 
And he spent a considerable period of time living out in the forests, just trying to avoid and evade being recognized, being hunted down, people tipping Saul off as to his whereabouts. And he was living in caves, and kind of formed a bit of a, bit of a mini army himself, about four to 600 people kind of you know, became his uh, informal army, but didn't help things. He's still in hiding. And at one point, Saul did get a message that they had discovered David's whereabouts. And so Saul assembled 3,000, not 300, like Jared Butler, 3,000 uh, of his like, top, top army people to go to this area where David had been identified and literally kill him. So you can think 3,000 soldiers plus all of the supplies and the, you know, it's like, it's a big deal. This, this convoy is approaching the area, the forest area where David and his people were hiding and they would have you know, heard Saul's army coming and so they actually retreated into a cave. Saul, at some point as they're coming through this forest, Saul needed to go to the toilet. Yes, even kings need to go to the toilet. So you can't just drop your robes in front of everybody. He kind of went up to the hill and he actually backed into a cave to do his ablutions. Uh, he uh, coincidentally chose the cave that David and his men were hiding in. It might have been the only cave in town. We don't know. Back then, it's dark. Takes off his britches and uh, <clears throat> squats down and you know, starts scrolling Instagram. Anyway, you can picture the rest. Uh, and, and David's men, hiding back in the cave, whispered to David, wow, this is incredible. God has delivered King Saul into your very hands. I mean, wow. You know, we've been praying for this. I mean, we've been, we've been on the run from this guy. Fear for our lives for months, potentially even years at this point. And, and, and now there's King Saul in <laughs> the most vulnerable position he could have ever found himself. His people weren't, they were, no, they were out of sight. That was the whole point. And so, unsurprisingly, David did exactly what you'd expect him to do at this point. So David crept forward. And initially, cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. And I mean, like, don't read this. Visualize this, Hollywood style. It's like he didn't just go for the jugular. This is going to be one of those slow burn killings. Maybe a bit of torture involved. Maybe, I mean, you know, Saul's been making his life miserable for a very, very, very long period of time. Maybe get a little bit of that back. And there you are. Well, stay tuned. I'm going to come back to that. Hey, uh, the last few weeks we've been highlighting that you and I, we can now, uh, in the Bible app, set Elevate Church as our church. And a bunch of you have done that already. We see the, the metrics on that. We don't know who, but we just know numbers-wise. You can do that now. Just simply open your camera app. 
scan this uh, code and it'll set, uh, elevate as your church. And the main feature we're using that they've implemented initially is we can put a featured Bible reading plan. Um, and if you set Elevate Church as your church, it'll be there literally uh, waiting for you every Monday morning. And it's been pretty neat doing it through this series because every Monday we've actually been putting up a, a reading plan from the life and leadership of David that's actually been specifically tied to the very aspect that we've taught on the Sunday. So uh, this week's um, Bible plan was obviously about the David versus Goliath called The Bigger They Are, The Harder They Fall. And uh, so I've been doing that. A bunch of you have been doing that. Tomorrow we'll... we'll we'll put uh, in a, a Bible plan around what we're teaching today. So that's that. Now, also we made it a bit easier to jump into the Bible uh, verse that we're reading off. So you can use the same phone, same camera app, just open Zoom if you're, if you're probably in row three and backwards. I don't know. Uh, it'll take you to this thing. First Samuel chapter 24, you can manually open that. You can even have a paper Bible and open that to First Samuel chapter 24. As you're doing that, just remember, here's the situation. Saul, squatty potty. David, slicing off robe. Da Saul didn't even know, like, he didn't even know what happened. I mean, the point is, Saul may not have even actually had the robe on at that moment. I'd just be put to the side. He's still got the element of surprise over King Saul. He's still got darkness to his advantage over King Saul. And he's still got 600 of his men in the cave. Saul is on his own, right? Slow burn killing. Whew. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. David switched into humility mode. He chose not to do something because he knew God hadn't greenlit that. See, sometimes courage is standing up and speaking, standing up and acting. And sometimes courage is keeping your mouth shut and doing nothing until God gives it the green light. And it's only when God gives it the green light that we have access to God's power and favor. And, and so David chose what on the surface seems like a pretty peculiar decision, but... Humility won the day and he knew that his time would come, but it would come when God wanted to move him from anointed as king to appointed as king and this wasn't the time. So starting point for any of us to, to growing in humility has to be say, God, you know, God, I'm gonna pop the hood and I want you to do the stuff in my heart. Okay, that's, but that's one, that's one side of the coin. There's another side of the very same coin, okay, when it comes to humility. I've occasionally, so <laughs> when God first like tapped, you know, pointed and tapped David to be the next king, having looked at David's seven older and so-called, you know, more capable brothers and, and said no, no, no to every one of them, God's words were, people look at the outside appearance, but I look at the heart. And David's heart is head and shoulders above his brothers. Now, <laughs> I've actually had people say to me in my several years on this planet, 
Well, yeah, I know people look at the outside appearance, but you know, God looks at the heart, which is code for terrible interpersonal skills. They just said something very, very dumb or did something very, very dumb and said, oh yeah, but, but, but you know, of course people judged me on that. People look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Like, yeah, sure, but, but if your motives are so pure, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot because your skills are terrible. And so here's the gold standard that I encourage people to aspire to is get maximum overlap with your intentions, aka your motives, and your actions, your words, what you do. Maximum overlap. It's like a, it's a Venn diagram. We've got this uh, just to give you the look. Because here's the, here's the thing. Let me tell you something you already know. Again, <laughs> nobody wants to work for a boss who has great motives and terrible interpersonal skills. Did I just arrive at somebody's workplace? He's like, how does he know? Has he, got, has, he, has he been in my office this week? Does he have CCTV installed in the break room at my business? Nobody wants to be raised by a parent who has great motives and terrible interpersonal skills. Nobody wants to be the friend of somebody who has great motives and terrible interpersonal skills. Am I right? <clears throat> so, in the time we have, here's Marco's practical tips on how you can become more humbler. Reese, I'm very aware that's not a word. At least not yet. Every word started somewhere, people. And as with any skill, this, I'm going I'm to drop seven, y'all. Seven. Okay? I know. In not many more than seven minutes. Uh, and, and, and the good news is this. As with any skill, these can be developed. I think some of these will come more naturally to some people than others. But, but, but they're not out of reach for anybody. And they can be continually, and I re recommend you do, continually develop them over your life to be more effective in your life and leadership. And again, these are the skills that are intended to marry up with the motives of humility. Here's the first one, consistently serve others. Now, I have intentionally put this at the top of the list because the other six that I'm going to show you are all built on the foundation of this one. So you can't skip this step. It will actually reduce the effectiveness of the others. So, and, I, and I know this is true, not just from my life and experiences. Louisa, uh, aka wifey, um, is brilliant at this. For example, a couple of months ago, uh, Louis comes home with a, with, a, with a bottle of wine and I'm thinking, woohoo! And he's like, nope, it's not for you. Uh, and a card, and I'm like, well, that was terribly disappointing. Um, and she shares with me that one of her colleagues, not someone in her team, not someone in her direct report line, but just somebody like adjacent to her in this, the school setting that she works in, had been humiliated by a parent. You know how that goes? 
you know, like it used to be that if the kid's underperforming, you yell at the kid. Now if the kid's underperforming, you yell at the teacher. You know, you've seen that shift, yeah? All the teachers are like, come on, preach it, Mark. Yeah, well, it's not cool, people. And so this teacher was getting absolutely dunked on by this parent, which is not cool. And what made it worse is the boss of, the, of this uh, staff member was in the meeting and did nothing to have the back of the staff member. Doubly not cool. So even if the staff member didn't, hasn't yet developed the confidence and the skills to say, excuse me, uh, parent, you don't get to speak to me like that. They might not be there yet, but boss person really needs to step in at that moment and say, you don't get to speak to my staff. But that didn't happen. And so this, uh, this colleague of Louise's is, spends the rest of the day in tears, found out, spend the whole night, you know, crying herself to sleep as you could expect. So Louie, again, not one of her colleagues in her area, but knows the story, gets a bottle of wine, gets a card, writes a very heartfelt letter, set her alarm early, not a morning person, set her alarm early the next day so that she could get to school early enough to break into her colleague's office and put the card and the bottle of wine there with the heartfelt message and then just leave it. And that's the first thing that her colleague would um, get on arrival and shortly after the colleague arrived and read she started crying all over again Uh, allegedly cried more then than she cried the day before but in this case it was the good sort of tears and look Louis this she does this stuff all the time it is a very very expensive line item in our monthly budget (laughs) but here's the thing If and when Louis has to have a coaching or a clarifying conversation with any of the people in the staff there, they don't call her motives into question ever because she's done the heavy lifting upstream to establish her motives that she's there for others. So this is number one for a reason. Here's number two. The rest aren't in any particular order. That one is. Here's number two. Don't be a know-it-all. Now, because I don't know it all, I don't know everything about you all, but here's three things I do know about you all. Number one, fact, you don't know it all. Fact number two, everyone in your sphere knows that you don't know it all. And here's fact number three, nobody likes a know-it-all. So surrender the fantasy And instead, have a high question to statement ratio. Ask people, ask, get wisdom from, and if you don't know, there's a thing that's crept into our culture. If you don't know, you have to pretend that you do. And I'm like, you don't have to pretend that you do. Literally, use the words, I don't know. If it's important enough, put a comma on and say, let's find out, shall we? And if it's not important, just say, I don't know. And I don't know. Number three, don't care who gets the credit. <laughs> See, if you're in a workspace, uh, family setting, workspace probably is one of the m- m- more obvious ones. <clears throat> and it is about getting, let's put the next one up. It is about who gets the credit. Then, next one. Media operator, awesome. Here it is, number three. Don't care who gets credit. If the emphasis is on caring about who gets the credit, then you come away from meetings 
pointing to the best person, but not necessarily walking out of the meeting with the best idea. Here at Elevate, one of our guiding philosophies is best idea wins. Now get this. Very occasionally, I have the best idea. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And when I do, I'm like, good job, Marco. And my idea gets put into production. Fantastic. But not because it was my idea, but because it was the best idea. There are other meetings where someone else, most of the time, has the best idea. And we say, let's do that. That's the best idea. Sometimes their idea kicked out the existing idea, which was once my idea. My idea got made redundant. How rude. But not at all. It's the, and the only exception to this, especially if you're a leader, give the credit to the person who came up with the best idea. Brag on them. But again, you're bragging on them for coming up with the best idea. You're not saying everyone else is a useless pile of... <clears throat> Number four, be approachable, not defensive. Now again, doesn't mean you have to be a doormat or a punching bag or a pushover, okay? One of the things, by the way, this is, I'm a recovering defenseaholic. I used to be so defensive, like so defensive. Yeah, and my default was like, just, you know, punch back. Punch me, punch me, I'll punch you. And it just, it just by the way, did, have you ever done that? It just, things just escalate. And actually what happens is the very issue that was meant to be on the table falls off the table and the issue that's now on the table is about who should stop punching first and, and how quickly should we try to kiss and make up later. Um, so what I learned is in, to, to be approachable, not defensive, is I don't have to agree with everything you're telling me. And I'm confident now to say that to you, Okay. Because agreement, sorry, let me say, let me swap this around. Understanding is not the same as agreement. You follow? We've we've blurred the lines in our current culture. See, you could explain to me why you think something, why you have a position on something, and I can understand why you got to that place, but I don't actually have to agree and I don't have to join your position in that space. I've had people say, this is the classic one, right? When I say, yeah, I, I understand, uh, but I don't agree. Uh, this is the classic that I get thrown every now and then. Well, you weren't listening. No, I heard you. <laughs> I understand you and I don't agree. And by the way, if you're interested, you can ask me why. <laughs> and I'll happily explain. And, I, but, and, and, and here's the thing. I, don't, I will give you an explanation, but I'm not going to try to convince you either. This isn't an, an, an arm wrestle. We can actually have... So, this, so, so you can be approached. Now, by the way, there's some people, three strikes and they're out. Like, no, I'm not even going to listen to you. I had to do this week. Uh, somebody sent me their third... They've sent me three emails in the last 12 months, and all three of them were highly toxic. I, del- I read the first one, deleted it. Read the second one, deleted it. This one I just deleted. Well, actually, I read it, then deleted it. And then I set up on my computer a new rule that any emails that come from their email address go straight to my bin and get automatically deleted. Yeah. 
It's a little side tip. Number five, really quickly, be quick to acknowledge your... Be quick to... Be, be quick to acknowledge your... Your... I was... I'm sorry, I was... That's a throwback to Arthur Fonzarelli on Happy Days, by the way. I was... I was... He didn't get the word out. Be quick to acknowledge you're wrong. Now, here's a pro tip in this. I'm a big fan of unqualified apologies. I'm just coming to you to say, I'm an idiot. I'm terribly sorry. I've just realized that I was wrong. That's an unqualified. And they're pretty easy to like receive, right? And you're like, oh, cool. I appreciate you coming to me with that. Sometimes, particularly when it's an ongoing uh, relationship that I'm trying to build some trust in, I will, I will ask them, would you like me to give you an explanation of why I did that? Because I had to process it myself, and that might help us just get better understanding going forward, but an explanation isn't an excuse. So I'm still not giving you a qualified apology. I'm giving you an unqualified apology, but I just thought it might be helpful for us in our friendship, working relationship, whatever. If I just explain, and it could be like, you know, Junior vomited on the, the car seat when I was in the kiss and cry zone at school dropping him off this morning. And when I came to work, I just lost it because emotionally and I hadn't had much sleep the night before. Again, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said what I said. I have no, I have no excuses for that, but I just thought it might help if you understand why, what the, what, you know, the why behind my actions. So there is that. All right, here's two. And, the, and this, is a, like a, this is two sides of the same coin. Number one, speak life to others. And I bang on about this all the time. It's like the old saying. You know the saying? If an encouraging thought forms in your mind, but you don't say it, did it really form? That's the saying, right? Ah. Well, I just made up a new saying. How's that? See, we live in an increasingly transactional culture where some of the people in your sphere, you only hear from them when they want something. You only get a text from them, an email from them, occasionally a phone call when they want something. And that's okay. If you've got something they want, that, that, nothing wrong with that. But if, but if your relationships devolve to it's just an exchange culture of like requests, we're missing a huge opportunity. Whereas encouragement is, is described as oxygen to the soul, that we speak life to people and it actually pumps their hearts up. It adds value to their lives. Uh, and again, this is the upstream heavy lifting because occasionally in life and leadership, you might need to have, if you're the leader, what I call a coaching conversation or if it's more of a peer thing or a family thing, I call it a clarifying conversation. I don't use the word conflict because I don't think things have to be con confrontational, but clarifying. Now, some <laughs> schools of leadership teach what's referred to as the turd sandwich. They don't use the word turd. They use another four-letter word, starting with S, ending with T, adult word, and it means the same as turd, but you, there it is. Anyway, and it's taught. And, and is anyone, oh, sorry, don't answer that. Uh, has anyone heard that, the turd sandwich? All right. Sure, yeah, a few of you have. All right, cool. And, and the basic idea is when you have to have this coaching or clarifying conversation, approach the person, say something nice, serve the turd, and then say something nice. 
And, and, and allegedly, that's meant to make the turd more palatable. Mmm, this turd is delicious because it's sandwiched between two slices of encouragement. Has anyone ever been served up a turd sandwich by somebody? Was it delicious? Did it leave a sweet aftertaste? In, no, absolutely not. It is terrible advice. The better play is the upstream play. Be known as somebody who consistently serves people and speaks life to people. So that when, if and when, you have to have a clarifying conversation, that person will be likely be less defensive, more receptive, and actually, best case scenario, receive what you've brought them as a gift, not a turd. Anyway. I promised myself I'd get through that point without saying any adult words. Yes! Woohoo! It's a new record. Final one. And this is the other side of the coin. Become a bragger about others. Have you ever had somebody come to you and they're spouting off toxic stuff about somebody else that's not in the room? And then they walk away and you think to yourself, holy smokes, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not in the room. Let me solve the mystery for you. They say stuff like that about you to other people when you're not in the room. Life lesson, people who gossip to you will gossip about you. Because the issues aren't the issues, they are the issue. Habit, toxicity is the issue, right? But do you know it cuts both ways? What if you are known about as the person that you're in a room and somebody who's the topic of conversation isn't in the room and you speak about them in a positive way? And they're not there to defend them. No, what? hang on, I got that wrong. They're not there, but that's not the point. And the people in the room that you're bragging about someone else who's not in the room think to themselves, Holy smokes, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not in the room. And the others say, they say all that sort of stuff about you as well. I cannot guarantee that if you and I develop this toolkit, I cannot guarantee you will never be misunderstood again, okay? I will go as far as to almost guarantee <laughs> over the long arc of time, you will be less. You, <laughs> oh, I know, but what I meant was, it's like having this, people know your motive. It's humility. And uh, it's about the heart and the skills maximally overlapping. We really hope you got a lot out of this message. If you live in the Perth area, we'd love for you to join one of our live experiences. For times and directions, as well as information, head to our website, elevatechurch.me. For those of you beyond the Perth area, we'd love for you to connect with our online experience, which premieres every Sunday via YouTube and Facebook Live, and on demand immediately after.
And to partner with us to reach more people by giving financially, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and also download our Elevate Church AU app.